Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to call and equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make Him known. For more information, you can visit our website at cityofrefuge.org. All right, well, our text for the day comes from Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 3 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, we started in on our series on looking specifically at gospel proclamation. And you'll remember we started by looking at the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well out of John 4. And out of that story, we saw first the way that Jesus pushed through many of the social barriers of his day in order to meet the spiritual needs of this Samaritan woman. Uh, We also talked about the reality that God the Father is seeking those that will worship in spirit and in truth, that we have a missionary God that is always seeking out worship but doing so through saving his people. We talked about how Jesus taught his disciples to see their circumstances through spiritual eyes. You remember that line, look, the the harvest is white for for the reaping. I didn't quote that quite right, but it was pretty close. Um, But this idea that they were supposed to see that the harvest was there, that the people were ready, and that you remember the Samaritans sort of coming out to see Jesus, and what was supposed to be this momentary stop for lunch turns into a two days of Jesus and the disciples doing ministry with the Samaritans, and Jesus taught his disciples, you need to see what's going on beyond just the physical And we ended our time praying that God would open up our eyes to begin to see the spiritual needs of those around us. And I hope that in this past week, you've been doing that. And I hope God has been showing you some of those things around you. For the next two weeks, we are going to be kind of doing a two-part study of Ephesians 1 and 2, looking at today sort of what is the nature of the gospel, and next week, what does it mean that we're lost? 
And I thought it was important that we do this because in some ways it may seem very basic. Well, what's the gospel? But in actuality, a lot of Christians sometimes have trouble articulating what it is that is actually central to what we believe about what the gospel is. And so we're going to spend some time in Ephesians 1 today doing that. And then next week, DACA is going to be talking out of Ephesians 2 about sort of what is it to be lost? What does that mean that we are lost in our sin? And so I want to look at that today, what is the nature of the gospel? But I, I want to do it in, with a particular lens of how does the gospel answer some, some key things that I think kind of just people in modern American culture are, are looking for or seeking or trying to, um, to try to answer some of the, the kind of spiritual needs in their own life. And I think those, those four things that I want to interact with, the first is joy. I think most people in, our, um, in America would say, yeah, I want to be happy, I want to be joyful. The second is authenticity. That is a word that you hear a lot, people seeking, I want to live an authentic life. The third is knowledge. And the fourth one is meaning. So we're going to look at Ephesians 1, what is the nature of the gospel with the lens towards that. So I have five things that I want to point to as some of the key central truths of the gospel that come out of Ephesians 1. And the first one is this, that the gospel is a gift from God and has the glory of God at its center. So starting in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every special spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I have once heard this section of Ephesians described as a cascade of blessings, and it kind of plays out that way. It's just like Paul just goes and goes and goes with all of these things that God has accomplished for us through the work of Jesus. But what is central to that, everything that Paul is about to talk about in this section is a result of God's work. It is a result of the work of the Father through Jesus. It was not something he had to do. It is something that he did out of his grace and out of his mercy. And it's also not something that we have somehow earned. It's not a result of our works, nor is it something that we somehow come to deserve. At the center, the gospel is a gift from God, and he was the one that made it happen. But it also has a purpose and has his glory at the center. Later on in verse 12, Paul is going to say this. He's going to say, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Right? There's the sense where the gospel is intended to make us so that our very existence is for the praise of his glory which means that at the center of what the gospel is doing is the, the, the worship and praise of God. You remember the quote that we talked about last week from John Piper, missions exist because worship does not. And we talked about last week that, one, that is both right and good because God deserves it, but that's also the place that is in our greatest good and actually the place where joy is actually found because God has made us in such a way that we are designed to worship him and to be in relationship with him. And so it is actually the case that as we move towards worship of him as the center of our lives, that also then is where we find joy. And I think it's very important that we start with this idea that God is at the center of the gospel. And here's why, because there's a real danger if we begin presenting the gospel in a way that starts with man in the middle. 
And there's a lot of gospel out there that, be, or be, that is being preached that is not true gospel that starts with man in the middle. And it's some, it goes something like this. It says, well, what your problem is, is that you are unhappy and you're suffering. But if you are willing to come to God and do the right things, live a right moral life, then he is going to give you everything that you want in this world, and then you will be happy. Right? That is, I'd say, what is at the center of what we would call the, the prosperity gospel, the prosperity theology, is this idea of that we can somehow come with this transaction with God where if we all do the right things, then he is going to give us all of these material blessings, and then we will be happy. I've heard it described um, as therapeutic moral deism. I love that description of this kind of gospel because it's therapeutic because it's all about making us feel better. It's moral because we win God's favor through our good deeds, and it's deism because although it posits there's a God, it actually takes him out of the center of the good news and makes us the center but the gospel that we preach is that it is a gift from God and it has his glory at the center, not us. So that's the first thing. The gospel is a gift from God and has his glory at the center. The second thing, and this is in some ways very basic, but so incredibly key, our fundamental problem is sin. Verse 7, Paul says here, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of of his grace, right? At the center of what Paul says that God accomplished in Jesus Christ was the forgiveness of our sins, which means what must have been at the center of our problem was our sin, right? That we have gone our own way, that we have ignored the ways that God has laid out for us. And we're going to see in chapter two, I'm not going to talk a lot about this a lot so I don't steal Daka's thunder, but Paul is going to talk about this idea that we are dead in our transgressions. He's going to talk about this idea that we are slaves to sin. He uses this very strong language to talk about the state that we are in because of our sin. And because of that, we are under the wrath of God. And what that means is is that fundamentally, without Jesus, our nature is inclined towards evil and not towards good. We have a sinful disposition. And we experience the wages of our sin, which is death along with the destruction that sin always causes in our life. And this is what the Bible says is our fundamental problem. And I think this has interesting interaction with what I see as sort of the modern quest for authenticity. Because what I think has become a very pervasive idea about what is our fundamental problem is that our fundamental problem is actually that we are inauthentic people. Our problem is that we don't know who we truly are and we experience suffering and unhappiness because we do not live according to the real us. So I think culturally the idea is our problem is is that we are inauthentic and the answer to that problem is found by looking within, right? What we have to try and do is that we have to first try and discover what our true identity is, 
and then have the courage to live according to that identity regardless of what other people think. And if we are able to do that, if we're able to figure out who we really are and then live into that, then, then we will be authentic and fulfilled people. And that is all well and good if our natures are fundamentally good. If at the core we are good people, then yeah, we just have to discover who that good person is in us and live according to that, and then things will be great, right? But the problem is that what the Bible teaches us about our baseline nature is that it is not fundamentally good, that at the baseline nature, we are fundamentally sinners. And so if we start to live in an authentic way with that, we end up doubling down on living into the very patterns that will cause death and destruction in our lives and will continue to separate us from God. Now, I do think that there is a lot in the scriptures about the fact that there is a new person that God creates in us, that there is a new man, that there are aspects of our identity that are waiting to be redeemed through Jesus. That is absolutely true. But I think we have to say that, no, our basic problem is not that we are inauthentic. Our basic problem is that we are sinners. And if that's the case... The number three, the answer to our problem is the forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus. And this here, I think, is the very core of the gospel. Our problem is sin, and Jesus is the answer to that. Verse 7, in him, again, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. All right, Paul is talking about what happened when Jesus went to the cross. That in that moment, he was bearing the penalty for our sin, the penalty of death. That he was experiencing the wrath of God that should have been for us. And because of that, we now have access to the forgiveness of our sins. And how we gain access through that is through faith. Later on in Ephesians 2.8, Paul is going to say, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not for yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul wants to be really clear that the way we come to access the forgiveness of our sins is through faith in Jesus and not through anything that we do. You cannot work your way to salvation. It is not some scale where so long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're fine. There is only hope to be found if we have the forgiveness of Jesus. Here, Paul uses the language of redemption. There's a lot of images in the New Testament for what Jesus did, but here he uses this, this language of redeeming something, this idea of buying it back. Paul, or, Doc is going to talk next week a lot more about this, but this idea that we are, we are slaves to sin, there is a sense where we are captive to it. And what this is talking about is that Jesus is buying us back. Right? We are no longer captive to that because we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus. And we have received forgiveness. That's the other language he used here. And this is more relational in nature. Right? We were in rebellion against God. We were doing things that were offensive to him. We were, had broken relationship with him. And if that relationship is going to be restored, then there has to be forgiveness from him towards us. And that is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You know, I was thinking about this reality of, of how our problems are answered with regards to sort of the modern quest for knowledge. Um, so, I mean, I think going back to, like, the late 1800s, 
early 1900s, there was this pervasive sense that we could solve our problems through knowledge and reason. The sense that if we could just figure things out, figure out how everything worked, then we would have the power and the knowledge we needed to make the world that we wanted. Now, a lot of the dream of that took a pretty hard hit during World War I and World War II, where we kind of got to see the other side of what our knowledge and our reason and our scientific accomplishment could handle. But nonetheless, that idea has continued to uh, pervade our culture. And, and I think with the kind of rapid developments in technology that we've seen, there's still this lingering idea that if we can just figure things out, if we can just have enough technology, if we can just get what we need to, to solve our problems, then things will be okay. But again, the gospel says differently because our problem is not that we are ignorant. There's the problem is, is that we have a sinful nature and a broken relationship with God. And unfortunately, that is not something we can think our way out of. That is not something that we can reason our way out of. There is no amount of knowledge that fix that problem. And I think it's interesting here how Paul talks about this idea of, of knowledge. He talks about that Starting in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Right? He talks about this idea that there is a wisdom out there that we don't get in any other way except in relationship to God. There is that which we need God in order to be able to see and to understand. So even if we are, are someone who, who deeply is longing for knowledge, if there's someone you know who, like, that's kind of what drives them, there is a sense in which there are things that we only we can know through the power of God. So that's number three. The answer to our problem is the forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus. The fourth thing, the gospel leads us to live lives of worship. We read this earlier, but he says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Right? The gospel doesn't just call us out of sin. It calls us into a renewed purpose. One of seeking the praise and the worship of God. And that isn't just talking about coming here and singing on Sunday morning. I think when we think praise, that's, that's often where we go first. Right? The hymns and the spiritual songs and all of that. But it means so much more than that. It's, it is about a, a, a whole life that becomes about the praise and the worship of God, that when we walk in obedience to him, that brings him glory. When we tell others about what he has done, that brings him glory. When we love our neighbors because we love him, that brings him glory. When we pray for our enemies, that brings him glory. Right? There is a, a renewed purpose we find here and, and this is actually, if you go to the Westminster Confessions, so the Westminster Confessions is sort of the, the statement of doctrines that, that our denomination adheres to. The first question in there, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? What are we about? And it says that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
right? And this is the purpose that we are called into when we come to faith in Christ. There is a meaning there, but it is a meaning found not about fulfilling our own desires. It is a meaning that is found because we have come to love the Father and now are seeking his glory in all the things that we do. And that is a high and a holy calling. It is something that if we really come to understand the ways that all of our life fit into that, gives so much meaning and purpose to what we do. So again, if you encounter people who are, are experiencing, like, just like, what is this life all about? What is the meaning and the purpose of it? The gospel answer to that, that the meaning and purpose of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Last thing, the gospel gives us a hope and a future inheritance. So verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of and glory. In him you also, when you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> Sorry, Houston allergies are getting me. But he talks about here, in him we have an obtained an inheritance, right? That we have a hope to go look forward to, that the, the work of the gospel in our lives is, yes, about now. It is about restoring our relationship to God now and reconciling us to others now and giving us a renewed purpose, but that there is a hope of something greater that we are looking forward to, that there is an inheritance that is prepared for those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, this hope of eternal life, this hope of dwelling with God as his people and a place where God is going to wipe away every tears. Every, all of our tears. And this gives some perspectives because as much as the gospel does so much in terms of giving us a renewed life and purpose, there is also an extent to where we should not expect the fullness of all of that now. In fact, if we go and read, and we, we saw this when we studied 2 Timothy like there's sort of the promise that if, if we are followers of Jesus, we're actually going to experience some hardship in this world if we attempt to live a godly life, that there's going to be some, some persecution, that there's going to be resistance to that. So we should go into this with the understanding that, yes, there is so much to be found, but there is also a great hope to look forward to, and we should not expect the fullness of everything now. But what we can say is that God's presence is promised to us, that the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our life is promised to us, that we will have a future hope, something that, to look forward to when things get hard in this world. And the gospel teaches us to turn away from just the things of this world as our hope and to put our hope fully in what is to be revealed when Jesus returns. And I think that is such a... a a challenging thing for us to do is to really take that call seriously because I know for myself it is so easy to get caught up in the little hopes, right? The little things that are going to come and the, the days or the weeks ahead that I'm looking forward to. And I'm, I'm thankful for those blessings. I'm thankful for those things in my life that are kind of the beautiful bright spots. But if I start to put all of my hope there, it's going to be empty, 
And there is a call here and a reminder here that we have an inheritance, and that is the place where we ultimately find our hope. And again, I think this is a place that both for us and also for those that we will be proclaiming the gospel to, this is a place of real spiritual need. A place where, where many in the, around us have lost hope, right? They have become disillusioned with the, what this world has to offer for good reason, because it is not the fullness of what we are to experience. It is not the fullness of what heaven will be. And we have the opportunity to proclaim to them that no, there is a hope to come, both in terms of God's presence and his spirit now, as well as a time when there will be no more sorrow and no more tears. Amen? So, kind of out of this, I wanted to encourage you first to continue in that pattern of, of praying for those around you, praying that God would continue to open your hearts and your mind to see the spiritual needs of those around you and to have faith that, that the gospel is good news for those needs, that just as the gospel has, is working to meet those needs in your life, so too can it do so in those around you. And, and I want to encourage you that for those people where you're seeing, hey, there's opportunity here, Start taking the initiative to, to spend time with them. Start taking initiative to, to try and have conversations with them, to have spiritual conversations with them. Start finding out what, it is, what do they think the problem is and what do they think the answer is. And that might give some openings to, for you to explain what you think the Bible says about this is what our problem is and this is the way that Jesus answered it and these are the ways that Jesus answers our spiritual needs. And pray that God would give you the courage in those moments to speak the truth um, about what Jesus has done. I know it is scary to do this, uh, but I want to encourage you to be actively pursuing that in the weeks ahead. Be looking for those people who, who need this good news and help and pray for God to give you the courage to do it, to be able to explain to them these very simple truths about what God has done. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we have talked today about things that are probably, for most of us in this room, very familiar, and yet so foundational. And Lord, we give you glory for them because they are things that you have made happen, Lord. You have been the one that worked all of this great salvation for us. And so I pray, God, that you would continue to, to spur us to be praying for those around us who need to know you. Pray that you will give us courage to be initiating relationship, to be initiating conversation, God. Lord, may we not shrink back, um, but in love of you and of them, God, speak truth. All these things I pray in your precious and holy name. Amen.